Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. The scripture is loaded with blessings and curses, and um, if you remember recently in our sermons of Genesis, you have um, the flood, and just after the flood, um, Noah took up farming, and he planted a vineyard, and so he made wine, he drank the wine, he got drunk, and then he uncovered himself in his tent, and his son, Ham, looked on his father's nakedness, but Shem and Japheth grabbed a a garment and walked backward, and covered their father's nakedness and did not see his nakedness. And um, what happened after that was a curse. Noah gave a curse on his son, but to his son's son, to Canaan, um, Ham's son Canaan, and to his descendants for what he had done. But also, he gave a blessing He gave a blessing to Shem and Japheth and said, let Canaan be their servant. And so Shem and Japheth honored their father and God honored their godliness by blessing them. What's very sad about this situation is that not very long after God had saved his people from the flood, cleansing the world of unrighteousness, just like baptism cleanses us from from our sins. But what's very sad about this is not too long after God had redeemed his people um, from the flood, um, a type of baptism, just as God cleanses us from our sins, his own people whom he had saved from his judgment had fallen into sin and God cursed them. And that's to be a warning to us, a warning to remember our baptism, not that we are saved by our baptism and that we can do whatever we want to do, but that God has washed us by the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And we are to humble ourselves, rest ourselves in the arms of Christ and turn away from sin. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Stephen Baker preached to us on Genesis chapter 10, which is called the Table of the Nations. This this passage that we very quickly gloss over because it's a a long list of 70 men, it's actually quite important as Pastor Baker showed us, and I want to show you a couple reasons why because it relates to our passage today. Um, So chapter 10 lists the descendants of Noah's family, their language and nation, showing us important facts concerning the generations of Noah. And this was relevant to the Jews because it allowed them to see God's blessings and curses of Canaan, particularly Ham's son, whom eventually God commanded the Jews to destroy the Canaanites. So you could see why it would be important to know who they were. This list also gives us a context of the Tower of Babel. 
many of the descendants listed in this table go beyond the construction of the city and tower of Babel. It even gives some insight as to likely who is leading the whole undertaking. And so let me give you a couple brief examples of these. In Genesis 10.25 it says, Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. The statement that the earth was divided is most likely the scattering of peoples and the dividing of languages, which is accounted in the chapter we're about to read. And so this division would have happened at the time of Peleg in the middle of the genealogy list of Shem, Noah's son. So we're able to see somewhere approximately the time in which the event at Babel happened after the flood. And earlier in the same chapter, chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, it mentions Cush, who was the son of Ham, another son. And remember that the particular curse wasn't on all of Ham's descendants, it was particularly on the Canaanites, Canaan's sons. However, God promises to visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children even on the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And it doesn't at all surprise me to see such great wickedness come from Cush's son, Nimrod, the grandson of Ham. Verses 8 through 12 says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty hunter. I'm sorry, a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which is the same word, Hebrew word, as Babylon. And Eric and Akkad and Kana in the land of Shinar. And remember that name, Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala that is, the great city. So I ask myself the question, what kind of crazy person builds all these cities? Even a city that is written by Moses as the great city. Undoubtedly, Nimrod, the son of Cush, was an exceptional leader, a leader who rivaled the greatest of all time. Nimrod was able to rally the troops and get everyone excited about their work, and he achieved very much. And I believe that he likely would have been the political force behind the events at Babel. And sadly, he wasn't working for the kingdom of God. He wasn't busy building Christ's church. He was busy making a name for himself while establishing the church of Satan. For all those who don't bow their knee to the Son of God and make him their master, makes Satan their master. And sadly, this is what we find in the Babel text in Genesis 11, that their whole intent was to betray God and his commands. And God uses this history to teach his people who God is and who man is. For God resists the proud yet gives grace to the humble. 
before the Tower of Babel scene, chapter 10 ends with this statement. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So the table of the nations in chapter 10 moves from Noah all the way after the generations at Babel, showing a larger picture. But then we're going to back step now a little bit and zoom in on on the particular part of the chronology where the division occurred and the reason for Peleg's name, which meant division. So now let's read chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. The scripture goes on rehearsing the genealogy of Shem. But this time, scripture gives the ages of the fathers when their sons were born, and it gives them the number of years each father lived on the earth. And the following genealogy is more exhaustive, going all the way to Abram, showing who the the father of the Jewish people is. I'm not going to read it now, but the list of those ages is important to the Bible story because it shows us that during those days, the people continued to live hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, Noah lived another 350 years after the flood so that he lived 950 years in total. And so if the making of the city and Tower of Babel occurred during Peleg's lifetime and not many people were dying yet, all his grandparents and great-grandparents up to Noah would have been been alive at that time. And it's even possible that Noah was alive at that time, but we don't know. It's a very difficult question to answer who was there at the Tower of Babel. I can't say for certain because scripture does not specify, only saying they journeyed east or they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Earlier I read to you from chapter 10 that the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel or Babylon and Erech and Akkad and Kauna in the land of Shinar. But that still doesn't answer the question who they are. We just don't know. 
I think we can assume, however, that since the population would not have been very large at this point, and they had not yet been scattered on the earth, they were likely all together or not too far from one another. And it's quite plausible that they were nomadic and that they moved to the east as a group and settled in that land. And remember the verse that preceded this history in chapter 11 says, these are the families of the sons of Noah. And then the next verse says they. So the only indication we have is that they are the families of Noah's sons. And I want to point out something interesting about these verses. When you read this text, there are some striking parallelisms used in the nine verses, perhaps to add interest or memorability to the account or to heighten the spiritual truths within it. And it's important to remember that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses, the author of Genesis, to write this account in this manner. The manner in which these verses are written uses a literary device called antithesis, which is often used in the Psalms. It is simply contrasting two concepts or thoughts against one another. For example, Psalm 1 says, how blessed is the man, contrasted with the wicked are not so. Or another example from Ecclesiastes 10.2, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. So this text about the Tower of Babel uses an antithetical structure just on a larger scale. And so I want to show you on the screen, we'll have to bounce back and forth a little bit, um, It starts on the outsides and works its way in. So verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth used the same language and same words. And then if you jump down to verse 9, it says the whole earth and a confused language. So earlier there's same language and now there's confused on the whole earth. Okay, go back up. We have a, a broader description with verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 9. 1 through 4 are a description of what um, God, a man did, and 5 through 9 are what God did. And then verse 2, they found a plain of the land of Shinar and settled there, and compare that to verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. Verse 3, They said one to another. And verse 7, God said, they will not understand one another's speech. And back up to verse 3. Come, let us make bricks. And verse 7, God says, come, let us go down and confuse. Verse 4, let us build for ourselves. And uh, this is parallel with God saying, in verse 5, which the sons of men had built. And notice in verse 8, kind of jumping a little out of sequence here, it says they stopped building. In the middle we have verse 5, which is the keystone, which says the Lord came down to see, which is the summation of the history here showing who God is. He's high, he's lifted up, 
and he came down to see versus man who is lowly and on the earth. And so this literary style is making a very clear point. Verses one to the four again are about the plans of man, even about the lowliness of man in comparison with verses five through nine, which are about God's doings and his greatness. Isaiah 55, nine says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Psalm 8, four says, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Man is but dust. Man is made from the earth. But contrast that truth with verses 5 through 9. God is so big and so above man. They built a tower to the heavens. And God had to come down. As it says in verse 5. And that's the antithesis. That's the principle of opposites. Man is sinful and in his highest strivings, his highest strivings are nothing to God. The flick of his finger topples man's fortresses. Well, prior to the mess the descendants of Noah created, there was unity in the whole earth. They all used the same language and the same words. They found a place to live in and settled there. And it was beautiful. It was wonderful. They were, they were together with family. They were united. They were peaceful. But then they united to do evil. They had become discontent with God's blessings. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. The reason they had to bake bricks was because there was no stone to work with. So they perfected their construction which would have been a new kind of construction. And this shows all the more the dedication they had to this project. They found some success in making the bricks and their pride swelled so that they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a a tower whose top will reach into heaven. They were unstoppable. They mastered the art of brick making. And now they thought they could rival God. Scripture says that they encouraged each other in their work, for it says they said to one another. They spurred each other on in this work. It doesn't say that they received orders to build these bricks by Nimrod and then to use those bricks to build a city and a tower. It says they said to one another. They they had self-motivation. They were determined. They cheered each other on. They did the work of one, one anothering as Pastor Max often says. They united and said, come on, we can do this. They had hope, but it was a false hope because they believed a lie and had given themselves to worship the creature rather than the creator. They tried to make a name for themselves, trying to rival God by building themselves a city and a tower that reaches into heaven. So they took on this enormous project and put themselves out there and were willing to suffer all kinds of consequences so long as they achieved their goal. 
And the truth is we're not so unlike them. Think how many inconveniences we would be willing to suffer to accomplish our desires. When we are determined to do something, we will give up all kinds of things to do it. We won't eat. Have you ever worked on a project and skipped eating till you got it done? I have. We won't sleep. We'll work all through the hours of night to get it done. We'll reject all kinds of pleasures and conveniences. We'll even lie in bed awake scheming about what we're going to do next. Our ambition carries us on. But what about when God commands us to do something? How do we respond then? We say, oh, it is too hard for me. Surely God doesn't want me to suffer this way. Oh, I can't bear it. Or we say, this is the church. This is not my work. I'm not getting paid for this. Why should I? Or, this is so inconvenient. I was going to go home, relax, put my feet up, watch a movie, and now I have to fill in the blank. How suddenly weak we are when God tells us to do something. And I know the perfect example my children. They love to race on their bikes and they'll race and they'll race and they'll race. And it gets dark and I say, okay boys, time to clean up and come inside. And what do you think happens? Daddy, my leg hurts. Or daddy, I'm tired. I'm hungry or I have to go potty or whatever it is. It's entirely predictable. And this is who we are. This is exactly what we do, except we do it in a more nuanced way, right? We're more sophisticated about it. We're more clever. This drive that my children have when they set their hearts to do something is unstoppable. They'll just keep going. And we're the same way. But when it's God who tells us to do something... We look for excuses to not obey. The 16th century reformer, Martin Luther, says this. He says, when men, when men give themselves to evil, they overcome all difficulties and obstacles when the devil pushes them to such rabid actions that they overcome everything that should restrain them. Now the drive my children have for playing is not evil. Having a drive to work is not evil either. But the drive to do evil and reject God, that's evil. And when we set our minds to something, we accomplish all kinds of things. But why is it that, that when God gives us a command, we whine and complain? We'll say, but my wife or but my brother, but my sister, they did this, or this is their problem, or my son will make all kinds of excuses 
So why do we not have such drive in building the kingdom of God? Why do we not have such drive for making the name of Jesus Christ known throughout the world? You want to know the simple answer? Is because we're too busy building up our own kingdoms. That's where our devotion lies. And now we see ourselves in Babel. They were building their kingdom just as we build ours. But John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And the thought of us decreasing scares us just like the thought of being scattered across the earth scared Noah's sons. But what we fear isn't true. For if we decrease, we will receive all the blessings and rewards of heaven through Jesus Christ. The same was true of Noah's sons. If they would decrease and obey God, he would bless them for eternity. And so if you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up and exalt you at the proper time. Believe that this is true. Do not fear what God commands. He'll reward your obedience. For whatever pain and suffering obedience of him might bring, it will be multiplied with infinite blessings in heaven. And the joy of the Lord will be made full within you as you seek to please him. The sin of Noah's sons was not that they were building a city and a tower. It's not wrong to build those things. In fact, God is at work building for himself a holy city, the new Jerusalem, which will come down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, Jesus Christ. Cities and towers are certainly not bad, But the heart is what matters. The folly of Noah's sons can be summed up in this one verse. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. The sons of Noah reveled in their evil, And God knew it, for as the prophet Jeremiah said, the Lord searches the heart and gives to each man according to his ways. Their hearts were discontent and their sins went unchecked. Discontentment bred bitterness and anger against God. And whereas they were supposed to prepare themselves to worship and honor God, in those places where he would be pleased to lodge them, they contrived to rise up against him. But how do we know that their hearts were acting wickedly in building the city and tower of Babel? Well, first we know it by God's response. God is just, and he judges each man accordingly to his own ways. God cannot sin, and so the way he dealt with Noah's sons 
was a fitting judgment for their sin. In fact, he was very gracious in not destroying them altogether. Also, look at verse 4. It says, Let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, how did that work out? They got themselves a name, Babel, which means confused or mixed up, and God scattered them. Proverbs 10.24 says, What the wicked fears will come upon him. But the desire of the righteous will be granted. What did they fear? They feared that they would be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And that was exactly what happened to them. What they feared came true. But why did they fear this? Where did they hear that they would be scattered? Did they hear it in the account of the Garden of Eden? God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. Or perhaps they heard it from Noah, the preacher of righteousness, or from his sons to whom God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God gave a clear command to Noah and his sons to fill the earth, but think how they misconstrued God's words. God didn't say he would scatter them. He blessed them with fruitfulness and told them to fill the earth. God's blessing was upon them. Why should they fear? They should only fear because they were behaving wickedly. And what the wicked fears will come upon him. And they feared because they rejected God. They turned to their evil ways and knew that there was no way to escape him. Yet, they were blinded by their successes. Things were going so well. God had blessed them with fruitfulness and even gifted them with innovation. He had preserved them and not struck them dead like he destroyed the rest of the earth by flood. But they had become proud. They were smug, for they were puffed up by their success and thought that they so much pleased God that they were sitting right in his very lap, and so they believed they could do anything they pleased. And this is how those who reject God think. They've deceived themselves so much that they think God is very near to them. And that God will accept them into heaven because of their great achievements or because of all the kind things they have done for people or because they're not like those really bad people. And when men become so puffed up with success, they become deceived. Thinking they are building the church of Jesus Christ, they suppress her, persecute her, seek to silence and drive the godly away seeking to take away their liberties and not knowing their pride, their pride blindly they said let us make a name for ourselves out of fear of being forgotten out of their fear of being scattered and remembered no more therefore what the wicked feared came upon them and God scattered them does that remind you of a verse in the New Testament, 
Mary's song where she says, The Lord has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. And this is what God did at Babel. They thought they could overpower God in their ingenuity. They thought they could disobey his command and remain as one in one place and not fill the the earth and make a name for themselves. But they were no match for God. In verse 5, God makes this clear. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. It was that good. God had to come down to see it. Did the Lord not know it was being built? That he finally comes down to see it? Of course he knew. But God mocks it. He came down. Noah's sons hoped to rival God and they came nowhere close. It was built by sons of men, as scripture says, not deities, sons of men, fragile, pathetic earthlings. And Psalm 2, verses 4 to 6 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And God puts his foot down and shows who's in charge. So let me ask you, how are you resisting God? How are you testing his patience? The Lord is very long-suffering that you will repent. But there will come a time where he will say, enough, and he'll cut you off. We think that God is pleased with us when we have successes. But maybe it is his long-suffering to give us opportunity to repent of our sin. It is a wonder that he doesn't immediately strike us dead. But instead, he shows us kindness and patience so that we'll turn to him. But when? When will we finally turn to him and cease striving with God? When will we humble ourselves and submit to him and his commands? Noah's sons had great success in making bricks and building a city and a tower and God allowed this wickedness to continue but finally he said enough and put an end to it. He scattered them all over the face of the earth and named that place Babel. The name they earned for the city means confused, mixed up. And Babylon which deceives herself, calling herself the gate of God, is forever marked with the name confused. For in Hebrew, Babel and Babylon are the same word, Babel. And so the warning is this. If you want to make a name for yourself, God will give you a name, a name that will be forgotten forever, a name that will will be destroyed Concerning Babylon, Revelation 18.21 says this, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon 
the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be any longer. If you fear being forgotten, you will be forgotten. But if you want to make a name for yourself, honor his name, and he will give you a name, a real name, the most honorable name, and you will be saved and dwell with him forever. Remember the scripture I said earlier says, what the wicked fears will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. Well, who are the righteous? The righteous are those who turn away from their sin, who submit to his will and obey him. Those are the righteous, and he will grant their desires. The wicked in Babel feared God's commands, that if they obeyed him, they would be scattered throughout the whole world. And so they rebelled out of fear rather than obeyed by faith. But those who trust God and obey him, those are the righteous and their desire will be granted and they will be united with one another in Christ Jesus. There is much talk today of peace and unity and love And all those who, out of genuine love, seek to rescue those who are being led away to slaughter by their sin or the sins of others, or all those who try to stop evil, they're called haters today. And anyone who tries to lead a sinner to repent of their sin is called judgmental and intolerant. But these are not the haters. These are the lovers, the ones who love so much because of Christ Jesus that they are willing to rescue other souls from the grasp of Satan. Jesus said, as we read earlier in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Those who talk of peace and unity and love today are deceived Because without Jesus Christ's forgiveness of sins and without turning to him, there is no unity. Without him, there is no love. And without him, there is no peace. We all desire unity, peace, and love, both believers and unbelievers. But actually, let me tweak that. Those who reject God say that they desire unity, peace, and love, but they actually seek to destroy the church because God is their enemy, and therefore they will not know these things. They will not know peace. God may restrain his wrath from them to give them an opportunity to repent, but these things belong to God and his people. Peace, unity, and love will only be found by those who seek him. But the question remains, when will the world have unity again? When will this confusion of languages and scattering be undone? Or will it be undone? It will. Maybe not in the way we expected it. This day that we are celebrating today as Christians called Pentecost is a glimpse 
into the future of what will ultimately happen one day. And what happened at Babel will be undone with the gospel. God's son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and was crucified for our sins and rose on the third day. God came down, and this time it wasn't for judgment. It was for salvation. It wasn't to see what man had done, but to save him. The good news is that the Lord redeems man from sin if they trust in him. He redeemed Noah and his family at the flood, and though he flooded the earth, he replenished it. He scattered the people and confused their language at Babel and judged them according to their sins. But he unites and redeems all those who trust in him. In the book of Revelation, when they sang a new song in chapter 5, they said, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Isn't that wonderful? God's people will reign. That's a name. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation because of Jesus Christ. What greater name is there? And later in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, the author John said, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches. Palm branches were in their hands. And what did they do? They cried out with a loud voice as one, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And, to, and so today, even though different tongues remain, Christ joins us together and unites us all into one faith through the gospel. And this is our hope for one day every tongue, tribe, and nation will be gathered before him. In closing, I want to say this to you. The Lord has been very patient with you. But if you are continuing in your sin, don't think that he will be patient with you forever. God said before the flood, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Don't test his patience, but repent and come to him. Trust in the Lord and be content with what he ordains. God may confuse your plans, just like he confused the plans and language of Noah's sons. But consider that his grace to you if he confuses your plans. His extension of his loving kindness toward you so that you will turn to him. He wants you to trust and have faith to do his will. He wants you to obey his commands and he may be thwarting them so that you will trust in him.
So be glad in his loving kindness toward you and serve him. Seek to please him and seek to make a name for him, not yourself. Psalm 72, 17 says, May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Not by themselves, by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have clearly given us this account of Babel to be a lesson for us, to warn us about our pride and our wanting to elevate ourselves above you. Father, forgive us for this and cause us to be humble. Grant us faith and cause us to turn from our sin to you. Cause us to believe your word and to seek to obey it with all that we have. Give us your Holy Spirit and fill us so that we may be instructed in your ways and that we may be saved on that last day. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.